invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let me add a note. In case you're wondering or thinking to yourself, okay, he sneezed. I've seen him touch his face with his hands. I don't touch anything except the cup and the piece of bread that I break. I don't touch anybody else's bread or wine glass. In case you're thinking, gross, <laughs> I do the best I can to not spread whatever congestion is taking me a month to get rid of. And I appreciate the extra playing of the piano that enables me to um, participate fully and not uh, lead us uh, in strange tonal paths off of the uh, right pitch that we should be singing. So a uh, special thanks to those who labor in that way. Deuteronomy chapter 20. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We get to talk about war and how it is that Israel was to fight faithfully uh, religious and civil wars. When I say civil war, I don't mean wars within Israel. I mean wars that belong to the state against other nations that are not religious or holy wars, and how it is that the people of Israel were called to keep the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, while also waging battle. Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies, and see horses, and chariots, and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then... Commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women 
and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoils, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. <clears throat> you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy, and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Oh Lord, we come to you now and we ask, what does this have to do with us? And it is your Holy Spirit that gives us wisdom and instruction and shows us not only how this text is useful for us today in the church, in civilization, as a people devoted to love and good deeds, oh Lord, may we take the general equity and the wisdom that you gave to your people in times past that it might be applied unto our good and the promotion of the sixth commandment in our ranks. We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, Israel was preparing to live in the promised land and not only to establish themselves in the land of Canaan, but one day the plan was to expand. Even as Adam was called to tend to the garden, and as he tended to the garden, expand its borders, so Israel was called to tend to the garden, that original land, the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey to expand its orders, either by peace or war, to establish the godly kingdom over all the earth. Now, this would not be fulfilled by Israel. It is said it's fulfilled by Christ Jesus. And so there are rules in Deuteronomy 20 and principles that apply to the church that is the covenantal extension of the Old Testament nation of Israel. But there are also general principles of equity that do apply today to nation-states. How does a nation or how ought a nation righteously war against another nation? Or do you believe that these principles of divine revelation ceased with the coming of Christ? Are they no longer righteous? What can we then learn from them? That is what I want to focus this evening on under three headings. The first, a prepared heart and a house. A prepared heart and house. Second, an offer of peace and a declaration of war. An offer of peace and a declaration of war. And then lastly, no needless casualties. No needless casualties. I want to move through this text somewhat quickly because I believe that the principles here are simple enough 
The difficult part is, are we going to apply them? Do we believe them? And not only that, but they may challenge some of your preconceived notions as it relates to the things you see around you, as it relates to the functioning and the military-industrial complex. Let's look at the first point, a prepared heart and house. Now, the very beginning of this passage anticipates a very natural human reaction. Maybe you've seen some of those films where you would have men lined up on the battlefield and they would march to war, and it is astounding how close you had to get and actually to hit anything. When you fire a lead ball out of a gun, it doesn't go in a straight line. It goes all over the place. And so in order to guarantee that you're going to hit your target, you just have to be a few feet away. A few feet. And so the principle was developed, don't fire until you see the whites in their eyes, which is about from here to there. Which requires what? Well, either a lot of whiskey or a huge amount of courage. Both kinds of approaches went into battle. Here, what the Lord is saying to all of Israel is this. Go and be brave. Be courageous. When you go out to war and say that they have more horses, bigger chariots, and a bigger army, don't be afraid. Now, what God is not saying is there will be no casualties on the side of the Israelites, but that they will win the battle. God is leading them into battle. And the principle of courage, the primary principle of courage, is that you are called not to be afraid, but this imperative is built upon an essential indicative. Now, children, do you know what an imperative sentence is? It's a command. Go clean your room. The indicative is the instruction or the foundational principle upon which that imperative is grounded. Your room is dirty. You are responsible for cleaning it. Go clean it. Here, the indicative is the Lord is with you. And this holds true for the church in every age. Whether it is the congregation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20 or for Reformation OPC in 2021, we are to go into the battle, the spiritual battle, we are to face every occasion of life, even if you are called into military combat. Thomas Jonathan Jackson, General Stonewall Jackson said, If I believe in the sovereignty of God, I believe that, as I, that I am as safe in the battlefield as I am in my own bed. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. And it requires... A very not academic assent to this theological idea of God's sovereignty, but a very firm confidence that it is true. And there is nothing like battle to test your resolve of trust, is it? When the spears and the arrows are flying and the swords are being swung, the question is, will I be of Good courage. Will I have a brave heart? Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt. What the Lord is doing is he is reminding Israel, oh, by the way, do you remember? 
I am the one who conquered Egypt. I can lead you into the land of promise, and I will lead you into battle. And so the primary principle that is to be deeply rooted in our hearts is the call to courage. Be of good courage. Do not fear. Have a brave heart. Do not fear or panic, verse 3, or be in dread of them. Again, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. And so, in light of this principle, we have some other things as it relates to battle. And the general principle here in verses 5 through 7 is this. There is no such thing as a righteous draft. There is no such thing as righteous conscription into war. A draft is an unbiblical way to fill the ranks of an army. And here is why. Look at all of these qualifications for who is to go into battle. Look at the first one. Look at verse 5. The officers will speak to the people. If there is a man who has built a house and is not dedicated, that is, to the Lord, had a building dedication, then he is not to go into war before he dedicates it or some other man may dedicate it. He is to claim, that is, God's interest is in the covenant family and in the covenant home. Why else do we fight? What are we fighting for? If it is not for the peace of the homes of the righteous, we are fighting for the preservation of the covenant family. And so the first step in this, young men, listen to this, your home comes before a wife. You need to provide the means for a home ever before you bring a woman into that home. And so you see the order here. It's a home. It's a vineyard. It's a wife. If you haven't dedicated a house yet, dedicate the house before you go into battle. Because if you die, someone will lay claim to it. If you've planted a vineyard, something appealing about that. I think I would be the most efficient wine grower in all of Israel, if it always meant I had a vineyard to dedicate, right? If you have a vineyard, then go dedicate it. Or what you actually get to do is enjoy the fruits of your labor before you go to war. And in a similar fashion, the one to whom you are betrothed, enjoy her and commit yourself to her in vow before you go to war. Well, this also is a text that provides for us a very clear indication that who goes to war? Men. And only men. Men are called to build homes and dedicate them, to plant and enjoy, and to marry and go to war on, for the sake of their families. And so this isn't just the principle of the unbiblical nature of drafts, but guess what has just happened in this country? The opening up of drafting for women into the military, which is doubly unbiblical. What kind of nation sends women to fight for them? It is not a nation that honors the Lord. Now, maybe that's a little too close to home, and maybe you disagree, but show me from the scriptures where God says this is the way it should be. Deuteronomy 20 makes it very clear that our homes are not to be sacrificed for the sake of war. What it means is God doesn't need you 
to wreck your home for the sake of the fighting of a battle because it is God that goes before us. And not just these things, but look at this other one. This is where this thing, this, this evil nature of conscription and drafts really comes to play. If there is a man who is afraid, he should not go to battle. Now, we're not talking about a little bit of fear or a little bit of anxiety. I cannot imagine on the eve of battle, some man saying, there is no fear whatsoever in my heart. But those who are paralyzed by fear, it ought not be a crime to say, I cannot do it. I am afraid. Ultimately, this is a theological problem. It is not civil disobedience. It is not a crime, but it is a sin. There are some sins that should not be crimes. And there are some crimes that should be sins. What we find here is this. It's a very important principle. The Lord understands that fear in the heart of a man is contagious. And this theological problem of fear is what? A lack of confidence in the Lord that he will give us the battle. And who then is responsible for that man's heart? The priests of Israel. To remind him of the word of God that says, do not be afraid. This is why you have not only officers, but you also have commanders. You have those within the war who are going into the battle with the soldiers who are reminding them like chaplains the law of God and what it requires. We are not called to fight unrighteously or using unrighteous means to accomplish a righteous end. What the Lord wants us to see is that we need to put our homes before the battle. We've seen this, winning at any cost. In fact, when Mussolini fought in the war effort, a member of the Axis powers, and my, my grandfather has a unique story, my grandmother tied to the whole conscription. Mussolini conscripted all of the gold in Italy to fight the war effort. He issued all the women lead wedding bands. Safe, right? It broke the country. And for what? For what end? He destroyed the homes of Italy in order to fight an unrighteous war. And how many homes have been broken because of the warmongering nature of men who are in power, who care nothing for the glory and honor of God? And here's the thing. Israel was no stranger to this kind of warfare. Israel did this. They also abandoned the wise instruction of God. How do you keep the sixth commandment? As it relates to war, you leave the homes intact and you put your confidence in the Lord. How many did Gideon need to beat that pagan nation? How many? 300. If God wanted to, how many do we have in church? We had 68 the other day in worship. God could take the 68 people who were gathered here, members and visitors at Reformation OPC, and he could destroy the empires of the earth with 68 people if he wanted to. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is the only power that can truly go viral. This is what the Lord can do. And the question for us is, do we actually believe that that is true? 
Or will we forsake God's ways for ways that we believe are, in fact, more clever? We need to be careful. Now, this is what God does in order to deal with fear. He says, don't go. But then he doesn't just say, let those guys sort of go off and don't deal with them. No, they are to be dealt with because fear is a sin. And like any sin, it is to be dealt with by the priests of Israel. Now, when they actually go to battle, in verse 10, we see, secondly, an offer of peace and a declaration of war. When Israel goes to nations that are far away, now I want us to think of these two conflicts as civil conflicts and religious holy wars. The first is, when you go near to a city, make terms of peace. That is, Israel is growing and expanding and is filling the earth as God's chosen nation, and they run into these other tribes and cities. They are to go and say, join us. Now you may say, well, that is awfully arrogant and aggressive of them. But do you know what kind of laws these cities practiced? Do you know? It wasn't pride or arrogance to take the only good law that had ever been given to men and then to say to a city, guess what? Your law can be our law, a law revealed from the one who sits on the throne of heaven and earth, and you get to enjoy the peace and the prosperity and the life that comes through obedience to God, and they say, okay, then guess what? You make them your, in essence, slaves. You bring them in. Now, slavery in the Old Testament in Israel was essentially you bring them into the covenant family and you live with them as though they are members of the covenant. And you bring them up in godliness. What it looked like when Israel led, left Egypt, many Egyptians went with them. And do you know why? Because they saw that Yahweh was the only true God of heaven and earth. They were persuaded. And so when God says, go to these other nations, and they are afar off, they are a long way off, verse 15, this you shall do to the cities that are far from you, but not the cities here that is in the land of Canaan, because the land of Canaan was to be purged. Like the Holy of Holies, it was to be free from sin. Now, if that faraway city said, no, we do not want your law, the law of God, then they were to kill the men, and they were to take the women and children and bring them into the nation. Now, what that means is not forced sex and slavery. This is how the nations operate. Let us remember that there is another commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is the way of the Vikings, which is why all of Northern Europe are just blonde. Because for centuries, the Vikings spread their seed all over Northern Europe. They killed the men, and they took the women for themselves. That is not the way of Israel. And we ought not to think of Israel in this way. Though, yes, they did from time to time disobey the Lord. But what they were to do was to go to the city and say, peace. And if the city said, no peace, they were to kill any who threatened their bringing in of that nation into the tribes of Israel. This is a civil matter. 
This is a matter for the nation of Israel, for those who did not threaten their religious purity. But for the nations who were in the land, well, we see them here named and numbered. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. What does the Lord tell Israel to do? Burn it all. Everything. Turn it to ash. Now, we read this. And there are many among us who may say, well, whoa, I don't like that. Well, before you think yourself holier than God, let us understand who Israel was as a nation, what they were called to do as a type of Messiah. They were the means by which God would take back the land that men first gave up by sinning. Adam and Eve gave themselves over and they lost the call. They gave up, in essence, the call to expand Eden over all the earth. And so God took Israel, the nation. He says, now I will take a nation and I will, through them, purify this land. And I will make it a holy garden out of which the boundaries might expand. But here's the deal. That place where Israel dwelt where their beds were, where their houses were, where their hearts were, it could not be cohabitated by idolaters. It must be purified by fire, by war. And so, for all of those nations that dwelt in the proximity of the immediate land of Canaan, Israel was to burn it to the ground. Now, again, before you faint... I'm not saying any of you would. Many do. That's not the God I worship. I worship Jesus. This is Jesus telling Israel to do this. Okay? This is Jesus speaking. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling Israel, first of all, you are responsible for purging the land of evil. These are the tribes, these are the pagan nations they would take their children, as I've said before, and they would put them in the hands of a molten hot God, and they would there melt before their pagan gods, and they would offer these children, their own children, for the sake of a good harvest. These are the temples where you would go into and you would join yourself with a prostitute as an exercise of worship to your pagan god. Sounds kind of like every major city in America, doesn't it? The murder of the unborn. I mean, there's a city in America where it's legalized to go in and be with a prostitute. These cities were Sodom and Gomorrah. And God was, through his instrument, Israel, purging the city from the land. Israel, apart from the mercy of God, would be no different. Let's remember that. It is only the grace of God that led to the holiness and the call of this nation. That, look at verse 18, here is why. They may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. This is the eye for an eye principle applied to war. And God gets to direct Israel what to do. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. The first conflict, as I said, is a civil. The second is a religious holy war. There is a, some aspect of proximity and influence. Not all wars are holy wars. 
the correlation now for the church are those wars that we find in verses, well, starting in 16. That the church is to go forth into the world and leave no quarter through the proclamation of the gospel for those who are lost in sin. We are to go forth by the Holy Spirit and conquer in the name of Christ Jesus by the sword of the Spirit. Now, as it relates to verses 10 through 15, what we find here is really the foundation for Christian just war theory. And it really is this. We are to be people who love peace until we have to enter into conflict. And when we enter into conflict, the rightful response of victory is, you now belong to us. You become citizens of our nation. And you adopt our laws as your laws. That is the right way to expand righteous rule in a world where war exists. The clear call is that we might in all things seek to preserve as much life as possible because we believe that God is fighting for us. Now, let's move to the last point here. Verse 19. This is a strange little text. Um, When you are reading men like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, one of the things that both of those men saw were the horrors of World War I. C.S. Lewis was on the front line, Tolkien not so much. In fact, C.S. Lewis, uh, the inspiration for the hobbits in his, I mean, uh, for uh, Tolkien, the inspiration for his hobbits were the the fateful right-hand men of the officers on the front line in World War I, the trenchmen. And he made them small and diminutive because they were constantly working their way through these front-line trenches. One of the things that Tolkien acknowledges is that modern mechanized warfare is total war. I want you to think, I'm from Georgia, I want you to think of General Sherman marching through the South, and he burned it all. He burned everything. And the wickedness of that act is total for this reason. Israel and nations that endeavor to be righteous fight wars against those who are a threat to those who are actually fighting. What we're looking at is the principle of trees. Look at verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you may not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? We have a dog in our house. Her name is Bodhi. She's about seven months old, and she is at times a holy terror. She puts her nose where you don't want it. She licks you when you don't want her to lick you. And she just causes a little bit of chaos. But you know what Bodhi is not? Sinful. She's a dog. She's a beast. She's not sinful. And so as frustrated as I can be with her, as frustrated as we often are with her, what we can never do is treat her as though she is a willfully sinful, disobedient beast. So all punishment must be measured and tempered by that acknowledgement. 
It is men who have brought sin into the world. And it is men, and when I say men, I mean mankind here, that we declare war against as members of Christ's congregation. And when we go out into the world, what we are not doing is going scorched earth on everything. We are remembering the creation mandate, the preservation of the covenant home, and we fight. Whether we are in the religious arena or in the civil arena, there are those who are not in the fight. And here the Lord says, trees. Don't forget the call to preserve and take dominion, to be fruitful and multiply while you are fighting. As a global application, don't cut down the trees that have fruit. Why? Well, when you're fighting, what do you do? You get hungry. You need to eat. But the trees that bear no fruit, use those to build siege works. Siege works, kids, are catapults and ballistas. Those things you use to launch rocks over walls or to break down walls. Those trees you can use, but not the trees that bear fruit. What the Lord knows about men is once we get started warring, you've heard the phrase going scorched earth. We go scorched earth. There must be a measure of self-control, of courage, of patience, and trust that is to guide and guard our emotions when we go forth into battle. And we pick our targets. And we know who they are. And they are not the trees. I go back to Lewis and Tolkien. And one of the images in Tolkien's book is that Sauron and Soramon, the evil power and the evil wizard, destroyed the forests of Isengard. This, I'm an OPC pastor, and I'm using a J.R.R. Tolkien reference. I just realized how stereotypical that is. But it is beautiful. And they destroyed the forests. And the forests fought back against them. It's a beautiful picture of an unrighteous, unlawful, a scorched earth method. And when the righteous rule, the earth is healed. How do we leave something for our homes and yet wage war against the world? Well, for the church, we need to remember that God is not a warmonger, and neither are we. We do not lay waste to that which God says spare, and we do not enter into war as those who are violent, but to stop those who are violent. In, order, in other words, what we do is we go into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ to silent and to bring stillness to those who are under the power of sin. Now, I'm not sure how much I can apply this to people in the realm of civil authority because I don't think any of you have much civil authority. Some of you may. But we do not fight in such a way that there is nothing left to fight for. That we are people who are not only dedicated to the curbing of the wicked and the violent, but we are equally committed to the what? The promotion and the protection of the innocent. A great picture of this is Ruth and Boaz. Boaz. Boaz may be the most complete picture of a true Israelite in the whole of Scripture. 
certainly the Old Testament. Christ, of course, is the biggest, the greatest picture. Boaz was, at one point in his life, a mighty soldier. He was involved in the welfare and the maintenance of the city, and yet he was tender, and he noticed Ruth in the fields, and he said to his servants, let her glean. You know the picture? The old, grizzled, retired soldier, the crotchety guy with the anchor on his forearm. You know what I mean? Well, I can tell that guy was in the military. Boaz was a military man, and yet he was tender. David, David slew his tens of thousands. David put a rock right in the middle of Goliath's forehead, and while Goliath was laying on the ground, he took Goliath's sword and he cut his head off and he held it up. The last of the great giants that plagued the Israelites in the land of Canaan. And yet David played a harp. He was in a band. <laughs> we are called. We are called to understand that God, what God wants of his people is that we defend the innocent that there may be fear among us and that that is a problem that must be dealt with by the scriptures, but that we are to enter into the battle with courage because the Lord is winning. He is giving us the victory and he has promised us that. And the, 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 the most faithful, the most tangible promise that Christ is the victor is the table that we come to this evening. When Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20, did not the Lord lead you out of Egypt? We look at the table and say, did not Christ rise from the dead? And we go forth into the world with courage because we know that as we fight the holy war of the church, we do so with every expectation in the face of the great armies of this world. And they will come at us with physical weapons, but we come to them with what? With the word of Christ. And the Spirit, there is no power like Him in heaven or on earth. And so may we go forth in the power of the Spirit to wage war for the sake of the souls of men, women, and children. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we.